just like the old times before we had any guests and uh, people wanted to probably just listen to us. Welcome everyone to a very special episode of the FS Jam podcast. We are recording this on Wednesday the 27th of October. It has been one year since we recorded our first episode saying what is FS Jam? So much has changed in the last year. It's just me with Anthony and we're just going to be talking over what we've loved about the past, what we see what's happening right now and where else it could potentially go in the next year and things we're excited for. So let's get to it. Yeah, I think this is going to be fun and a little piece of FS Jam trivia for you is we had actually planned on doing every other episode with a guest and then just with us to talk about what we were doing in our dev lives, what we thought was interesting, but the podcast just took off and we found so many people to bring on that we ended up chucking that plan out the window, as you would say. We just kept talking to people, but I really enjoyed our conversations. I think some of our earlier episodes, like episode five and nine, especially with just the the two of us, are actually two of the favorite episodes that I've done and I've listened to quite a few times in the past. And so we'll probably revisit a little bit of the predictions we had last year, because I think that's pretty interesting. And then also just talk about like where we've gone over this year. And I think that the ecosystem itself is just in such an interesting place. And I know that you want to talk a little bit about the NextConf, which is funny because you talked about NextConf on episode one as well. So what do you think of NextConf? I only watched the keynote, so I didn't watch any of the other speakers that I'm due to catch up on because that was last night my time. Then I've gone to bed, woken up, done a day of work. What I thought of the keynote is Next is heading in a really interesting direction. Very different from what I would have thought potentially where they would be heading. I thought that they would head in more into the direction of the island mentality of splitting React out as much as possible to only need React where possible. I thought they were going to do that on a bigger scale, but nope. It seems like they're going to stick with their roots and go more down the SSR route, the server side rendered everything. Because we tend to forget that Next is quite old and it started as SSR, you know, it started as a server side rendered version and only added static building when Gatsby came along. It's really interesting. What's my opinion? It's going to be an exciting year for sure. Yeah, and I think with Next, you could already do partial hydration with, you know, some kind of manual effort. So I would imagine that's probably why they haven't really dug into it and made it like a key feature yet. But I, I do agree that at some point, they'll probably have to just because like Astro has made it such a big part of the conversation. But the stuff that did happen was SWC was a a big one. And we talked about SWC with Aldo, actually. And I've been really curious to see how this is going to go because it's a very new project that has potentially a lot of bugs in it. But when you have a company like Vercel throwing all these resources at it, then, you know, they can squash a lot of those bugs, I would imagine. I think that's going to be really great for the the whole ecosystem because I know a lot of projects are looking at SWC. Peter on uh, Redwood really wants to to use it, 
But the, the edge stuff is cool because Cloudflare is another big one that we've talked about in Cloudflare workers especially and the benefits you can get by having your, your JavaScript logic be actually on the edge and able to execute on the edge. And so they released these edge workers. I'm not sure exactly what they're called, but I know they're built on Cloudflare workers. I believe they're literally just called middleware. Next.js middleware. They actually had two names for it. A Vercel name, I think it was like Vercel Edge and Next.js Middleware, I think were the two names off the top of my head. This is really interesting because we're diving deep into two big areas I really want to talk about. Computation on the edge and compilers and dev tools. I think we should talk deeper about SWC first because that's the really interesting one. Over the last year, as you've seen, we've had this renaissance of build tools. SWC has now been integrated directly into Next.js with Next.js 12. The biggest caveat of SWC right now is if you use something like Emotion, Styled Components, something that requires a slightly custom babble present, SWC is currently not supported. If you use just PostCSS, then SWC is supported. It's that thing of if you've got a next project and you have a customized Babel RC, then probably SWC is not going to work out of the box. They have already stated they are working on it and they're going to be working more on supports for styled components, emotion and relay, but it currently isn't. Is that a big thing? A big bummer? I think so. I think they should personally probably waited until they had that support to really give it that kick to say we support everything because to me it doesn't feel feature complete like Babel if you're getting me because we all talk about Babel and like oh it's so slow and all these new tools that come now are so fast and amazing but most of them you can't configure like you can just configure Babel and I think that's what they're missing and soon as they have that support I think that's when they can truly say now check out your Babel now completely replace it and what they're saying is it's up to three times faster refreshes and five times faster building with caveats of if you use emotion, styled components, you still can't use it yet. So it's a bit of, yes, amazing, can't wait to use it. And a bit of a bummer at the same time, I think. Yeah. And this came up with Fred Shot when we were talking about Snowpack. He was saying how the more you have customized your own thing, the harder it's going to be to migrate to a new tool just in general. And he was talking more about Webpack configs, but it's the same thing with Babel in the sense that these tools were originally created to be highly configurable and highly customizable and to let you write your JavaScript essentially however you wanted, both in the syntax and in how you structure your project. But there's a lot of cost that came with that because you end up with your own weird bespoke custom project that maybe no one else can understand or, or can't necessarily integrate with anyone else's tooling. So I think that having these tools push developers in the direction of less customization, less configurability is a good thing, but then people who have these highly customized setups, they just aren't gonna migrate. They're just gonna stay where they are. So it's, it's a bit of a catch-22 for greenfield projects these new tools like swc and es build they're incredible but for the brownfield it's going to be a lot harder to see where this is going to go and i think that's something we tend to forget about is far 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 more apps are brownfield at this point than greenfield 
not many companies can just spin up a brand new next project and start going. Not many companies have time to start rebuilding their dashboard completely from scratch. It technically never makes sense in terms of money to rebuild something from scratch. If you're thinking about a business, why would I rebuild it when what we got is fine? Yeah, but it builds five times faster. Does it make five times more money? No, then it's never going to be worth it in terms of Brownfield. So it's that thing of, yes, so much of what Next is doing is you just upgrade and now it works. Great, but it will be you just upgrade and now it works when it actually works with all the packages you're used to. Because the last time I checked, styled components and emotion were very big projects that a lot of big companies use and a lot of apps use already. Yeah, and that's why I think it will probably just be a matter of time because it's going to be like how motivated are you to get your thing to work with the new stuff. Something else that's worth mentioning is that this was actually the second major project that has moved to SWC. Parcel is another one that is using it as well. So I think as more projects start using these newer build tools, different ones will figure out different parts as we go. This is one of the reasons actually I really enjoy being a dev advocate is almost everything I build is like a greenfield project because I'm always just kind of starting from scratch and, and building up sample projects and stuff like that. So it's been great to have an excuse to play with these different tools. And I've gotten a lot of mileage out of just building lots and lots of small sample applications that use lots and lots of different combinations of these new pieces of tech. I guess the next thing about build tools that I'm really interested in hearing your opinion is ES module support and URL imports. ES module support is obviously one of the things that we can just go under the table because it's coming, it's here. We all know what about it. The URL imports is, do you think this is going to take off and we're going to start just URL importing our packages? Or do you think we're still going to go the classic method of installing through NPM and going that way? It's a really great question. This is one where following Dino for a long time has given me some good perspective on this conversation because Dino has been doing the same thing. They build entirely on ESM, ES modules, and they have the same idea where their whole standard library is on like Dino.land and then you import all of your things from Dino.land and you can specify the version. And so I think the versioning is where this becomes really interesting because it makes it a lot easier for your project to not get lost in this whole crazy like lock file package lock.json kind of mess that you get with npm and so it makes your dependencies a little more comprehensible but there is going to be issues just with like people who have slower web connections and need to have the stuff just like downloaded and, and on their computer so i think if they can still find a way where you can build a project locally off of these urls then that'll be a good stopgap. But actually the real big difference, I think potentially could just be like security because you have to be able to verify that this code you're getting is the code you're actually getting. And there's a really interesting, very bizarre security incident that just happened like a couple days ago on NPM. There was this package called UA Parser, I think is what it was. This guy's NPM account actually got like hijacked. Like someone hacked into his account and then put like malicious crypto mining stuff into a package and then push that out. 
and it's a dependency in Redwood and in Slinky, both of the projects I work on. So this this came up in both projects. So there's open source supply chain issues that, that come along with this too. So it's a huge, interesting problem. And I think in general, it's going to be the direction a lot of projects are going to go. But I don't know if we'll ever see like a huge widespread ecosystem migration to this being like the way to do things like the jury's still out on whether that's going to happen or not. I think personally, it's a cool fad, if that makes sense, as it's a cool one-off thing that I'm going to do for one package. You know, like I need to install intercom onto my website. Sure. I'll just pull the URL, you know, because we're so used to embedding a URL into the header of their script. I can see that working, but having like a whole dashboard and then just importing it in as you need it, to me, it's then gets that point of, well, how do you keep it all up to date? What tool are you going to use? You know, because we're so used to going through a package.json and just clicking update, 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 update. When it's all spread through your code, it's no longer easy to know. How do you then know when a new version is ready? So I think it's a bit of an interesting one. A lot of plug and play SaaS companies fall into this area. I've been working in this area myself now with Everfund. We've been building a vanilla JavaScript plugin to easily integrate Everfund into other websites. One of the big things I've noticed is so many companies will just say, put this URL into your headers. A lot of time I've noticed not many of them companies are version and controlling the script. So that script will just be the latest version. But what happens if you want to push a break in change or the code changes or you want to depreciate something? Well, that latest script is now pushed out. And then you look at someone, something extreme like Stripe that has so many versions of their script into one script that you then define which version of the script you want of the script. It's a really interesting space. And I think where it will be simplest and where we'll see URL imports work will be for fads, one-off things, plug and play. But soon as something's needed far much more times and anywhere else, I think, yeah, package.json will stay around. I think it will stay. And that's me being honest because it just doesn't make sense to me. If I'm going to import something, why should I import it twice? You know, that same URL twice when it could just be in your package. But I think the big thing that I'm wondering that you probably know the answer to is about bundling. When you're importing a URL and it gets bundled, you're not actually bundling that ESM script into your bundle, are you? It's when the website loads, it says, okay, now go to Skypack or JS Deliver and find that module and then run it, isn't it? I think that is probably how it works. I think it is going to depend on how you configure your project because we did talk about this also with Fred. He was saying the problem is if you're trying to get like the most optimized production bundle, then you don't want to be making these different calls. And part of this dream was that people would then have these packages like cached. So if you have jQuery on a million websites, then once you've hit one, then it'll be cached and you'll have it and you can just go to other places and already have it. But in practice, that's never really happened. So if we can get to a point where we can actually like cache these modules in people's browsers, then we may get to a point where we don't need to also bundle them. But 
I think right now you still just need to bundle it all to get it all together and have it all be in one place because otherwise you're going to be making all these network calls and it's just going to be a huge problem for people who have slower internet connections. So I'm not really sure what the bundling story is with this and I would also guess it's just going to depend on what tool you're using because people now have all these different bundlers they're using. So Next.js generates a next.lock file. So I think it keeps track of everything in there and caches it locally. I think it's a really interesting thing. Should your browser have cached versions of the top 100 scripts? Potentially, because we did with jQuery. I think it's that thing again. It's like, should Tailwind be built into every browser? So the browser just knows. You can see a reason why the answer should be yes. But at the same time, why should it, you know, why should the browser now have the top 100 JavaScript packages bundled with it? I think the answer's still out on that one. Will it succeed or will it be this kind of fad as like, yeah, you can import for URLs, but we don't tend to. I think the final thing I wanted to talk about from the next conference is the server-side rendering of React Components and React 18. I'm really early on this i've not done much reading on react 18 i've not even read the new documentation that is currently in beta for react and i bet you've done both and i bet you even know a lot about suspense i really want to know your thoughts and opinions about this i know a little bit about it i haven't read the new react docs yet actually but the new react docs as far as i understand are more about explaining core react fundamentals in a more updated way because the old docs that are still have been up have been using class components and haven't really used hooks and the more modern ways that that we write react so i think that's the idea with the new docs in terms of the server-side components though we actually talked about this on episode nine it had just dropped and like no one really knew anything about it here we are like a year later and Still, no one really knows anything about it because it's so new. But I think that people are going to be more excited about it as it gets actually built into frameworks. And so with Next, Next is becoming kind of the first major React framework to incorporate server-side components. And it makes sense that it would be them because they really pioneered a lot of this work in terms of like server-side rendering and just connecting the front end and the back end in a, in a more coherent way. I feel like it's the chicken and the egg scenario when it comes to React. Next.js have just had their latest conference and go, everybody, Next.js 12 is out and it's got server-side components in. And we go, okay, exciting. Then go, now install React Alpha and React DOM Alpha. And you go, ooh, but do I really want to install Alpha versions of React? The answer is probably not. And then it's this thing of Next.js has said, we work closely with Facebook. Okay, so when is React 18 going to drop? Is it going to be next week? Or is it going to be six months time? We currently do not know. Why all these things like suspense are really cool and really exciting. We currently don't know yet how close they are. As in, when can I start using it today without an alpha tag? without a beta tag, with just a we've released it tag. React components do talk about the island mentality of having only the bits needed being 
reactive to what I understand is that if a server-side component is just going to render HTML, it's going to then just send that rendered HTML to the client. So it won't need to do any compiling of that or DOM tree manipulation. It would just say, okay, here's the five div tags that you need. Is that what you're kind of getting out of it as well? Because that's what I kind of see that it's all leading to. Yeah, it's a way to get as much of your components compiled ahead of the fact. And it's a technique that's going to be complementary to server-side rendering. And so it's going to be like you build as much as you can and then send it over and then like stream JavaScript to then partially hydrate it. So it's going to be a huge sea change in how this stuff works. And it's going to be kind of a conundrum for most frameworks to kind of figure out how to incorporate. I remember at the time when it came out, like Aldo was super fired up about it. And he was like, they, they finally figured it out and how this has been an idea he'd been thinking about forever. And so I think that it's going to be like a low level implementation detail that a lot of React developers are probably not gonna to have to think about too much unless they're like the main architect on their project and have to think of like holistically migrating the entire thing. In terms of it being like on an alpha tag though, people have been using the experimental build of React for a very long time. I know Blitz has been using it for the entire time it has existed because it uses all these kind of features. So I think they're probably farther along than most people would think. And I built like a very small, simple project with it, with React 18 back when it kind of got announced. And so I think that if this stuff is like interesting to you, you should just try it and just like see what happens, see if your application breaks, see what the migration actually looks like, you know, just get your hands on it. And then you'll, you'll start to see how far along it actually is and whether it's suitable or not for your use case. This is the thing when we're all talking about React 18, it looks like there's not going to be any more surprises as in like fundamental shifts. The last fundamental shift in React was the hook structure, you know, are you still using class components? What are you? You know, 2015, we use hooks today. And I think the really interesting thing to look at next is how Next.js just say, oh, just say avatar.server or avatar.client. And if it's avatar.server, then it will be server-side rendered. If it's avatar.client, it'll be client. But where do you make that distinction? Who's making that distinction? What's the best distinction? Surely React should work this out as like, this has reactivity. This should be done on the server. This should be done on the client by default instead of just having to say like, this is client and this is server. If you say this is client, this is server, and you say, well, server stuff gets server-side rendered, why wouldn't everything just be server? Why not have everything server? It's like, well, you might want some stuff to be client-side rendered what like you know just server side render everything i'm really excited to see how it plays out my last big question with react 18 do you think it's going to be out by the time 2022 comes around or do you think it's going to be first half of 2022 at this point i would imagine there's not going to be anything major dropping before the year is out i think usually people kind of aim for like things to happen before like the holiday season. So unless they plan on like actually releasing the entire thing, I would be surprised to see kind of any more big major news. But it is worth pointing out now that there's a working group, and this is something that didn't exist last year when we were talking about this, that they've actually gotten 
other React community members, people like Michael Chan and Mark Erickson, both of which have been on this podcast. They're both in the working group. And so I think that's going to be really good in terms of having other people testing stuff out and more importantly, looking at the API and helping communicate these ideas because you have people who are content creators now who who are involved, people who write lots of docs, like, you know, Mark is just like a doc writing machine. So I'm going to be taking lead, I think, from the people in the working group who I, I trust and, and respect. And when, when they start saying, hey, this is like ready to go is, is when I'll probably start saying, hey, this is ready to go. But until we start getting like those signals from the working group, I will continue to say this is like a alpha feature that is only for people who want to live on the cutting edge. Oh, yeah. And in terms of suspense and everything, I've literally done zero research into suspense past looking at it as in like one code snippet and going, is this just async away for React components? And the answer is, yeah, it's just async away for React components. Yeah, it's a way to lazy load. It's a way to split up your code. It's a way to make sure that you don't have a million flashing spinners when you don't really need them. So it's hopefully going to be a small code change because the way they describe it is you just kind of create like these suspense tags and put around the things that you want to make async. And this is downstream of concurrent mode, which was making React concurrent. So this is why you hear people talk about concurrent mode and suspense kind of together, but also separately. So the groundwork has been laid for these things over like many, many, many years. So it seems like we're getting closer to it really being a real thing, but it's become like a running joke in, in React now. People have been waiting forever for this. So it's kind of hard to say if we're actually there yet or if we're still you know, another year or two away. Get ready for React 20 concurrency mode. <laughs> well, we'll see. I think the last big thing I want to talk about, obviously from NextJS conference is Next.js middleware. The reason I want to put this more separately is that I feel like this falls more into the CDN area. I think the CDN area in terms of the landscape, we thought was fully defined to a certain extent. You know, Netlify has pushed and pushed and pushed us so far. But to me right now, I think we're only just beginning. I still think that Vercel and Netlify have so much scope that they can entrench on in terms of databases, in terms of more logic. And I think middleware from Next.js land and edge functions from Netlify, I'm really interested to see how each one's going to play out because they're not compatible to what I understand. They're completely unique to each deployment target. Will one be better than the other? Will we be able to do the same things on both? I don't know. This is currently like brand new knowledge of how Next is going to do these things. I've played around with a few of the Next demos and it's allowing you to do things like put a password in front of your Next website or try and detect a bot or run logic closer to the edge. This is super exciting. and I think it's potentially what serverless functions wanted to be <laughs> that they kind of just missed the mark in terms of my eyes. Will middleware turn into serverless functions or will it be what serverless functions want it to be? The jewelry's still out. And this is why I've been so interested in Cloudflare workers for this whole year because 
as you say, the CDN has become a big thing, but the CDN traditionally for things like Netlify and Vercel, they've been for our static content. And then there's still been those Lambda functions or serverless functions that have been on its own server somewhere out there in the world. And so you still get cold start issues and you still get latency depending on where you are on the globe. So getting those two things to kind of merge with each other, the serverless functions and the CDNs, that's been like the thing. And the issue though has been compatibility. And if you're using Cloudflare workers, then you can't run the same things you would just run in a Lambda function because you're no longer using Node. And so this is something that I think is going to bite a lot of people as they start using Vercel Edge because Vercel Edge is built on Cloudflare workers. So you're gonna have the same issue where people are going to be writing code thinking, oh, this is kind of just like a Lambda, right? And so they end up writing code like it's a Lambda, but then it doesn't work because it doesn't actually have Node in it they may be able to work that out if they just implement their own express-like abstraction, which is what a lot of people are doing. There's like Worktop is a Cloudflare workers framework from Luke Edwards that gives you a very nice kind of express-like syntax. And so I think we're going to see a lot of innovation there over the next year. And you have other ones that are building on like Wasm or even Dino because Uh, Matt Billman talked about this on on one of his podcasts when Edge Functions first came out. They're actually building on Dino, I'm pretty sure. And so that's really weird and unique also. And, you know, most people have no idea what the difference between Dino and Node is and what it would mean to write for one or the other. So it's definitely going to be one that I'm going to be watching and keeping a close eye on because it's something I've been very interested in. And I'm glad that, you know, Vercel is continuing to push in this direction. That was it. So there's two sayings. There's Next.js middleware, and that's what is specifically for Next.js. And then there's Edge Functions by Vercel. They kind of just shoved it together in the presentation, but the Edge Functions by Vercel is framework agnostic. So it could be used on something like Redwood or Gatsby or something else. Will it have many uses? Currently, you know, they've got quite a few uses out of the box from A-B testing to basic auth to bot detection, geolocation, JWT authentication. I think the biggest thing that will really be the big tick is can I move that server functionality that connects to my database closer to the edge, as in edge functions using something like Prisma? The answer is, as you said, Maybe we're getting there, but the answer is currently no. And I think this is a really interesting point to just sideline on. Isn't it planet scale that says like a database on a CDN or something on them lines? So you got planet scale and you also have CockroachDB just released their serverless offering as well. And their uh, multi-region Postgres sharded database that gives you like this whole global database type thing. And if you ever heard us talk about Fauna, this is one of the things that Fauna had going for it as well. So yeah, getting the database on the edge is going to be kind of the next big thing. And there's there's actually two things I want to get into here that are super duper interesting because we've had uh, Fly on, their episode hasn't aired yet, but that's going to be a really good one because Fly is also pushing this idea of 
what if we just basically make everything a CDN, just have absolutely everything just geo-replicated, and you can do that with like Postgres containers, and you end up with your database all over the place. And then the really, really interesting thing that happened is Prisma now actually works in Cloudflare workers. This has been one of like the really huge long-standing things that has kept Redwood from going all in on something like Cloudflare workers is that Prisma just hasn't worked. Like you, you couldn't run Prisma client on a Cloudflare worker until like a week ago. And so they now actually have docs and you can do this and you connect to MongoDB Atlas, which is their kind of like serverless database offering as well. So as of today, you actually can run almost everything on the edge all the way down to the database. It takes a ton of configuring and a lot of knowledge about these specific specialized services, but it actually is possible now in a way that it really wasn't a year ago. So I think this is super exciting. And for people who want to have like a true application that can scale, like this is going to be the way to go. Ken C. Dodds like made a big splash with his new blog and he built on Fly and, and did a similar thing to this. So I think we're gonna see a lot more people start to build applications this way and start to show that the benefit you can get from it. But this is something you just said, tons of configuration and tons of knowledge. In the next year, do you think we'll see a layman's terms? I can use one service, to deploy my DB, my functions, and my React app onto the edge? I personally think the answer is going to be no, but three years? Yes. I think you can do it today on just fly. And so I think if you really learn how their thing works, because part of the thing is you just need like a service that already figured out Kubernetes for you because I don't know if he's literally running Kubernetes, but they're running something that's very, very Kubernetes-like. It's really just about these container cluster pod things. I imagine people who are like DevOpsy people, they've known how to do this for a while, I would guess. And so in terms of making it like a turnkey thing that anyone can use, it's going to be how well do you already know one of these services and how well are these services integrated with your framework? Because Redwood has been working very hard on getting good first-class fly support. It's going to get to the point where you can just take your Redwood application, run a single command, and then it sets up your fly thing and, and just like shoves your project up and that's it. So there will be ways to do it that are going to be fairly simple, but it's just going to depend on what services you want to use and, and what framework you have. I'd like to say, I remember four years ago, when I first looked at, you know, I need to write a server function, see an AWS Lambda on the edge, right? And that was four years ago, but we're still not fully worked it out, but we're getting very close now. I think the last thing I want to talk about in terms of like CDNs, providers is a hot card. And that is, what do you think of what Brandon's doing at Blitz with flight control? What's your thoughts on it? That was awesome. It's super great because going back to our roundtable episode, we had a long discussion about this, about the problems we were having with the current providers and what it would take to have kind of the ideal deployment and hosting experience for these full stack applications. And the conclusion that we pretty much all came to is that we need to just make our own. We need to figure out exactly how to optimize for these apps that we're building because they are slightly different from a traditional monolithic app and a traditional 
decoupled Jamstack app. It's some weird kind of middle ground between the two. So it makes sense that there wouldn't be good hosting providers for us because we're not really doing something that slots into the model for how other people used to do this kind of stuff. So seeing him announce his own hosting provider, Flight Control, it was really exciting. And I'm very happy for him and I'm super stoked. You could pay like $20 to get on. It's like, you know, the early group of people who like get news and stuff. So I'm, I'm in there. There's been no, really no news whatsoever aside from they've had like one hire so far. And so it's still super duper early days. Like you can't use it at all yet, but um, really happy for him. And I hope that we'll get to do something similar with Redwood one day. I think it's definitely in the cards. It's just going to be a question of how motivated we are to actually do it. But there's so much room in this space because there's just so many problems to fix in DX and working with AWS and that kind of stuff. So whatever he puts together is going to be really awesome. And I think we'll kind of show the way of how we can make a nicer DX experience around deploying these kind of apps. Yeah, and I think something that came to my mind is our episode with Jason, Learn With Jason. He said, no matter what you need to build, Netlify will build it. And I think that's a really good thing that always sits in my head is the end game card that you could say for every single framework is build your own hosting platform for it. So you can really eke out that performance because that's what we've seen with Gatsby is a perfect example of they built out their own cloud with Gatsby 4.0. They're saying it's going to build a lot faster on Gatsby cloud. You should just use us. But obviously, you can still build it wherever. Exactly the same with Netlify, that a feature that they release is kind of dueling with Vercel's features now. It's kind of the end game card. I'm really interested in flight control. Hopefully, we'll have a working alpha by the end of year two of the FS Jam. And we'll definitely get him on to talk about that. Something else that I think is really interesting. What is FS Jam? It's a really interesting question because over the last year, I feel that the jam has gone through an identity crisis. Even I think it has personally. I think we're more at a point where maybe it's just full stack JavaScript. I don't know. I feel like we go through these cycles of decoupling to couple to decouple. What's your thoughts? Well, something we should mention is that Redwood is no longer a full stack Jamstack framework, according to the website. If you now go to redwoodjs.com, the headline has always been bringing full stack to the Jamstack. And that's really the origins of this podcast is you and I meeting, working on Redwood and seeing this kind of full stack Jamstack thing and wanting to take it beyond Redwood. But Redwood seems to think that it's not really a useful term and that they felt that it confused people and made them think, okay, this is just like a Jamstack thing. So that means it has all the limitations that the Jamstack has. And the whole point that we've been talking about is that the point of the full stack Jamstack is to address the issues that Jamstack had. And so that's why we're using the term, but they have now changed to it's the JS app framework. And I was saying how it, a funny troll tell people that the JS stands for Jamstack, but it doesn't, it stands for JavaScript. So it's the JavaScript app framework. They're leaning more heavily into just JavaScript and being something for apps. And I think that's probably the right move in terms of people get apps. Like when I just talk to like, you know, random people on the street and like my mom and stuff, like my mom knows what an app is kind of. And so it's a 
good term for the types of things you want to build, but I think that Jamstack isn't going anywhere. I think it's going to still be a huge thing in the industry, and so I'm still happy to keep using the term full stack Jamstack, and now that Redwood has kind of dropped it, it just opens the space up more for other frameworks that are going to be interested in doing this kind of stuff, like, you know, Webstone and all these, like, really newer kind of things that no one even knows about yet, but could become a big deal over this year. Exactly. And I like to just say, I put on my cynicism glasses and I said it should be the uh, TS app framework because TypeScript is fully supported. So why not just say TypeScript? But all aside, it's really good that they've expanded it because Redwood's doing something, I think, unique where they're trying to, instead of saying to your Gatsby developers, build an app with Redwood, to me, it more feels like they're speaking to Ruby PHP developers, as in, this is the JavaScript framework you want to build the next thing with. You hear everybody talking about JavaScript, but you've not touched it in 10 years. This is the way to do it. I think there's a lot of merit to them dropping it, and I can't wait to see where it goes. In terms of the term, yeah, I'm super excited. I still think it matters. I still think it's meaningful. I still truly don't know what the M is in Jam. Is it Markdown? Is it anything else? You decide. MDX now. Uh, haven't we all dropped Markdown for MDX? Is it JavaScript APIs and MDX? <laughs> you be the judge. I like mashup JavaScript and API mashup. Just mash them together. Yeah, I can see that working. <laughs> but it's this thing. They dropped the A and the M to lowercase. So now it's just JavaScript's the big thing. And it will always be the big thing. Well, that, that wasn't the idea. The idea of dropping the acronym was not that it's just JavaScript. It was that it's do you drop JavaScript APIs and markup altogether because you could build a, a Jamstack app without JavaScript at all. So that, that's the idea of them changing the, the acronym. But that's the point. But you can't, but you can because you say 11T, but 11T is built with Node. So it is JavaScript, but it's not got JavaScript in. Yeah, but it's just like Jekyll. Like Jekyll is Ruby and can just spit out HTML. So that's the idea in terms of you don't need JavaScript to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a super interesting year, as in to where we're going next. It's a really interesting one. I'm going to put my predictions in. We're going to go full 180 and everyone's going to be like, just server side render everything as soon as React 18 comes out and Next has their server side components, React components. We are going to see uh, you client render everything. Now that is old. I think we're going to see the complete opposite where it's going to be, I hate to say the next Chad thing to do is in now everything is server side rendered. I've got this new tick on my thing saying server side rendered supported or whatever. I think that's going to be the next big thing for JavaScript React specifically. All right. Well, this is a really fun conversation. I'm glad we got to do another one with just the two of us. We should try and do these a little more frequently than once a year. But um, yeah, thanks so much, Chris, for just, you know, doing this podcast with me. And we've had so many awesome guests and so many great conversations. I'm so excited to, you know, see where this all goes next year. We'll be continuing to talk to new people and new companies and new projects but i know we'll also end up talking to a lot of our other guests again there's quite a few that we've started chatting with to get on a second time so 
it's gonna be really great just to continue to build these relationships and see where the the ecosystem is going and kind of share the the knowledge of, of what we're learning as we go what i want to say is yeah thanks for doing this podcast with me but i think thanking each other is a bit like patting each other on the back i think the biggest thing that i can take away from this whole podcast is that maybe react isn't the only cool thing on the block and there's a lot of cool things coming up and i really hope some of them take off and become really big things like over the next year i want to get a Nuxt expert on to the podcast because Nuxt 3 looks pretty good. All you got to do is take off them React glasses and say, I'm going to go look at something else. And you realize it's completely different, but they're still having fun. Yeah, and that's awesome because Nuxt was one of the things I said I wanted to learn over the course of this year. And actually, I did do a decent chunk of some Nuxt work and I already have a Nuxt 3 blog post out there that we can link to. So definitely would be very curious to get a Nuxt person on. Yeah, I guess my biggest thing is that we're always open to more guests, you know, no matter what size you are, if you're a developer working on a side project or a massive company, really interested in hearing what you've got to talk about. And it doesn't have to be framework related as well. We've obviously in this last year, we started as, oh, we're this full stack JavaScript thing, but I'm excited to start hearing about Rust. How does Rust come into JavaScript? I would love to get someone on to talk about that. That's completely crazy. And I don't want to say this, but I want to be that guy who says the question, why do I need Rust to compile my JavaScript and act like I completely know nothing because someone's got to do it. Because why is Rust a thing? I still don't know. And I'm sure we'll find out soon. All right. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye.